Jeff Lilly is the president of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. UGM provides emergency care and long-term recovery services to hurting and homeless people in the greater Seattle area. UGM has been on the front lines of Seattle homelessness for over 80 years, starting with serving soup to thousands of homeless and unemployed people during the Great Depression. Their services have since expanded to tackle areas of hunger, homelessness, poverty, high-risk youth, and addiction. Recently, the city of Seattle asked UGM to lead the charge in cleaning up the homeless encampment under I-5 known as the jungle. In this episode, we talk to Jeff about his work in the jungle and the homeless campers' rights vote currently before Seattle City Council. Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. We're here with Jeff Lilly, the president of the Union Gospel Mission here in Seattle. UGM provides emergency care and long-term recovery services to hurting and homeless people in the greater Seattle area. They are dedicated to serving, rescuing, and transforming those in greatest need in our city. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So our understanding is that you're not originally from Seattle. Is that correct? That's correct. Is is anybody originally from Seattle? Good point. (laughs) You're definitely entrenched here. Um, Maybe just tell us a little bit about how you got here and how you got to UGM. Yeah, for uh, most of my life, I um, lived in California, born and raised there, and uh, worked at a place called Hume Lake Christian Camps, which is a large youth camp in the Sierra Nevada mountain ranges. Um, Kind of... Think Yosemite, but uh, just a little further south, Kings Canyon, Sequoia National Park. So for about 30 years, I lived in the mountains. Nice. Um, raised my family, had a wonderful life up there, but a very rural situation. So uh, I tell people it was like two hours from the nearest gallon of milk. <laughs> so the idea that you just couldn't buy a gallon of milk without driving for two hours. In other words, it was it was way out at the end of the road. That's an expensive gallon of milk, It too. is. And yeah. uh, very it limits your ice cream consumption right. and things like that. So uh, there were pros and cons. Right. But in that process, um, about seven years ago, uh, through a series of events, the Lord made it obvious it was time for change and moving in new directions. And... Uh, Kind of pointed at, uh, I say winked at, um, the mission as a future possibility. And as we looked at it, we thought, yeah, we have nothing to offer. You know, it was a situation where we'd been living in a remote location in the mountains, serving middle to upper income youth. And all of a sudden the Lord's saying, well, I want you to go to Seattle and work in the inner city with people who have no money whatsoever and have addictions and mental health challenges and different things like that. So um, we kind of winked back at him and said, yeah, that's funny. You know, <laughs> that's not going to work. Uh, w- w- as soon as the the board here sees the resume, they're not going to be interested at all. And uh, just the opposite through a, a series of events. Uh, I won't go into the long story, but uh, um, they offered the job and we took it uh, with much fear and trembling and showed up in Seattle. First time my wife and I had ever been in Seattle wow. was for the final interview with the board. Mm-hmm. And uh, we flew in, eyes wide open, and then went, 
wow, this is a beautiful city. This is uh, gorgeous. In fact, the afternoon um, we we did the interview and then um, we went on a ferry ride over to Bainbridge and we were coming back in the evening and the city was all lit up and it was, you know, showing off one of those nights. Of yeah. course, yeah. And uh, Was this a summer night as well? Yeah. Oh, come yeah. on. Yeah, you can't beat that. Exactly. So at that point, we didn't think we'd get the job. But we thought, well, this was a, a fun little date. You know, somebody <laughs> flew us to Seattle, and we thought that would be the end of it. And the, then the phone rang, and they said, yeah, we'd like you to come. So that was seven years ago. Wow. And a uh, big transition from living in the mountains to living in the city. But it's been a, it's been a blast, uh, very fulfilling, and uh, lots to explore and lots of fun and lots to learn. Totally. So do you live in downtown, or do you live in a neighborhood? We live in West Seattle. Okay. Yeah. So not too far from a gallon of milk, then. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's great. So let, let's talk about UGM's mission and why is it important to Seattle right now? Uh, well, I think if anybody had been into Seattle in the, any, anytime in the near, near past, they have noticed the homeless popping up all over the place. It gets to the point where it's not, you know, for a while there, you could drive off an off-ramp and you'd have somebody panhandling, um, flying the sign is what we call it when they're holding the cardboard. Um, or on a city street, you know, those types of things. But now it's become where there are tents popping up and encampments that start to just spill over onto more and more parts of the city. So clearly homelessness and statistically is growing as well. But it's one of those that as you look at the city, it's pretty clear that, that uh, we've got a problem, that things are trending the wrong direction. And uh, the mission has been there for 84 years, uh, literally addressing these kind of issues. And it's the type of thing where it's, it sits right in the core of what we do. The uh, mission has five key areas that it works on. Um, hunger. Um, for example, last year we did over a million meals just feeding throughout King County. And then uh, hunger, homelessness, poverty. Uh, addiction, um, meaning addiction recovery. We're not actually helping people get addicted, doing yeah, just right. the opposite. And then uh, youth at risk. So that's going into some of the poorest neighborhoods. Uh, most of those are South County, um, where some of the poverty areas are, but also in places like the Rainier Valley and working with gang leaders and um, youth in, in really troubled communities. So those are the five key areas. And as uh, even as we talk about income inequality and things like that, um, there's a lot, a lot of people who are doing better now than they've been doing in years. But then there's also a lot of people that are hurting more now as the cost of living continues to go up, rents go up. That makes it that much tougher for families who are just trying to hang on. So that's what we do. You mentioned 84 years. Do you, rem like, real quick, what's the history on the Union Gospel Mission? Yeah, I don't remember. You it don't? was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but was it birthed out of a church, or how did that come about? Yeah, great great question. It's the it's it's a fun story. Um, well, I guess fun now to tell. I don't think it was fun at the time. But during the time of the Great Depression, so think 1932, um, everybody's hurting. So families from all over the United States would look at the scenario and very similar situation we were just talking about where they're hanging on and they can just barely move on move anywhere. So they look at it and they take the last of their finances, they pull it together and they think, well, there's jobs in Seattle, there's fishing jobs, there's lumber jobs, there's stuff to do out there. They'd spend their last of their money to get here and find out there were no jobs here either. 
So they, it just kind of became like the end of the, the line and people started piling up. So right about where the stadiums are now, so CenturyLink Field, um, that area was known as Hooverville. Mm-hmm. And it was just a, um, up to over 1,000, 1,500 people living in tents um, year round. And it was just swampland at the time. So they basically were living in the swamp with their tents. And it just got worse and worse. Hoover was the sitting president at the time. So it's very similar to Nicholsville in Seattle. You name it after the mayor at the time, and they named it after the president. So Hooverville was this huge homeless encampment, but not because of addiction, not because of alcoholism, not because of mental health, but because of just simply the economy and poverty. So at that point, churches of Seattle King County started coming together. They noticed this crisis and they started stepping forward and they said, all right, what can we do about this? So they started bringing down meals and they would set up and do a dinner and uh, church would come down and they would, you know, have their fried chicken all out there. But just as they arrived, they noticed another church had already come and was doing chicken noodle soup. And then while they were talking about it, somebody else pulled up with spaghetti to feed a thousand people. And so they kind of all looked at each other and said, you know what, we probably should uh, orchestrate this a little better. Why don't you do Tuesday nights, you do Wednesday nights, I'll do Thursday nights, and we can end up covering the whole week. So that's what they did, and they created what um, was known as an association of churches, and and that evolved into Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. So we are listed today still with the IRS as an association of churches. Hmm. So it's just a group of churches that pulled together to meet the needs in the community. And to this day, our board has to be um, uh, validated by this association of churches for them to be able to serve on the board. So we continue to have that touch, and, uh, and it flips now to be in one of our prime strategies uh, we have a little phrase that stops and says, um, when Christ left the earth, he didn't leave a rescue mission. Mm. He actually left the church. Mm-hmm. So it's our job to actually come alongside the church and to help the church do what it was called to do. So if you think back to 1932, the best thing we could do is actually say, hey, could you bring chicken on Tuesday night? Could you bring your spaghetti on Wednesday and just work with the churches, not step in and say, hey, we're going to do this meal. You guys don't have to do anything. And that's, that's what our goal is, is to actually help the church engage with the poor. That's great. So <clears throat> bringing it back to today, uh, can you speak to the current homeless situation that Seattle faces and maybe even qualify for us the scope of the problem? Like, is the city equipped to handle the amount of homelessness that's taking place here? Yeah, the, uh, the numbers keep rising. So um, about 11, 12 years ago, Um, Seattle King County launched what was known as uh, the Committee to End Homelessness. Mm -hmm. And it was a a plan to put an end to homelessness. By like 2014, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Like the date has come and gone. And it's kind of like when you drive by the speed limit sign that says 55 miles an hour. It goes by pretty quick. Um, The numbers continue to climb over those 10 years not to go down. So... um, that was a lot of effort. Um, a lot of people like to bash it and say, gosh, we failed. Um, the reality is, is a lot of real good stuff was done. There was a lot of housing provided. There was a lot of lessons learned. There were a lot of people helped, but the numbers are growing faster than the solutions were coming to the table. So those numbers that were going up wasn't because the plan failed. The, the plan was designed to meet the needs at the time it was started. But by the time they got to the end of the 10 years, there were more people entering into homelessness than we were pulling off of the streets. 
So, and that's the case today as well. So that that name has changed. It's no longer the Committee on Homelessness. They figured out that was a bad branding if you mixed your mark with a ten-year plan and that type of thing. But uh, so now they're known as All Home, and uh, it's just a coalition of a lot of service providers coming together, along with government agencies, funder groups, things like that, to meet the needs. But the numbers uh, continue to climb. Um, Real clarification right off the bat is I think is helpful. If you take the the large homeless number, um, last year the one night count, which is an interesting thing in itself, but it's a, a bunch of us will go out on one night and count all over King County. And in the process, it's groups of two or three or four, and we literally cover every street. And in that process, you count how many people are homeless. And then in one night, you get that picture. It starts at about two in the morning so that you don't have, like if I counted somebody today, he may be walking down the street and then your group counts him and then he walks a little further and your group counts him. So it's the concept that uh, you go in and try to get everybody while they're sleeping and make that count at that time. That came up with over 10,000 individuals on, on that are homeless. But 60% of those were actually in some type of housing, transitional housing, um, maybe a shelter of some kind, but that they were actually in a program that was helping them get out of homelessness. So most of the time when we talk about the homeless individuals, we're talking about the ones we see that are the 40% that are unsheltered. So the 60% you don't see. They look like a regular citizen. They're living in, a, in an apartment, but it's being subsidized by, you know, the city or the state or some social service agency. And so we have a lot of homeless amongst us that we don't even see. But the challenge is the numbers that are growing fastest are actually the unsheltered. In other words, as much as we build, build housing, there are more people entering on the street who then are on the street for a variety of reasons. And that becomes a key component is that uh, the biggest ones for, um, and this is, this is one where the mission is kind of different than all the other service providers. Uh, they, they don't like our messaging on this one, but when we work with the individuals that are out on the street, the, the vast majority of them are facing addiction problems and some mental health and some criminal justice. And obviously all three of these overlap. Uh, if you do drugs for a while, you're gonna have mental health problems, or if you have mental health problems, they're gonna prescribe drugs, you're gonna end up addicted to drugs. And at the same time you get involved in either one of those, you're likely to get into the criminal justice system. If you're in the criminal justice system and you come out with a felony and nobody wants to hire you anymore, you are likely to end up homeless. If you're homeless for a while, you just feel pretty bummed and so you start doing drugs too. So you can see this is just all three feeding into each other and creating the, the part that we see right now. So over the last uh, four years, it has nearly doubled just the amount of unsheltered on the street. And right now we're at about 4,500 as of last January in the one night count. And that's a pretty striking number of 4,500 people on the streets without a place to go. And, uh, and that number from our perspective, even since January has grown. Mm. One thing I don't have a great, that I don't have great clarity on is <clears throat> how do, how does everyone work together or do they? So Union Gospel Mission has their, their mission and their tactics to, to combat the problem. Um, another service provider probably has theirs and, and you're sort of working towards the same goal, but you might do it differently. And then there's the city of Seattle and then there's King County. So is, is anyone sort of running the show or creating, um, a master plan for everyone to sort of fall under? 
Yeah, there actually is a, a plan. In fact, a new one that's out there right now. But the All Home that I mentioned earlier, yeah. in All Home is the old committee in homelessness. And it is in, indeed a, a coalition of all the service providers, all the government agencies, and all the funder groups to work together to um, both develop that strategy, but make sure it's getting enacted. And they determine how those funds get allocated. And even to the point that there's uh, you have everything from a single point of entry, that what what uh, the desire is anyway, that if you have an individual in need, uh, there's a thing called the VSPAT that's uh, um, – I think it's actually the VSPADAT, um, but it's actually a vulnerability index that, that dictates if a person is, uh, maybe they have a drug issue, maybe they have some severe health issues, maybe it's age, maybe it's a minor, whatever it is, that'll give them a score on this vulnerability index. And if they have the highest score, then they get whatever housing opens up through any of these service providers. Mm-hmm. So you get the ones in the greatest need into housing first. So that's the logic behind what the strategy is. But the mayor, um, just over this last year, uh, hired a consultant, uh, Barbara Poppy, from uh, she used to be the head of the National um, uh, Homeless uh, Coalition. And she did a survey on what was working, what wasn't working in Seattle, and she came in with some recommendations. There was another study done by some independent groups, and the mayor pulled those two studies and then developed a strategy known as the Pathways Home. And so that's the current strategy for the city of Seattle, but there's an additional strategy through the all-home group of what they're strategic plan is and they're pretty much aligned though there's some stuff that the city has said you got to change we're only going to fund things that look like this it'll get into the weeds if we we talk about those but um so that plan is out there right now and uh the the city the, the mayor's budget is sitting before the city council right now and it's assumed that approval of that budget is the approval of that strategy okay so it sounds like everyone on some level is kind of working together. Yeah. For the most part, um, we may not all see eye to eye on everything, but for the most part, we lean into each other as much as we can and kind of know each other on a first name basis and can pick up the phone and call if needed. That's great. So speaking of not seeing eye to eye, um, so there's been a few recent headlines surrounding homelessness that we'd love to get your take on. Uh, So one is the clearing out of the jungle, which you were recently, as of yesterday, um, we're in the Seattle Times um, participating in that uh, process. And then two is the current plan that's up for vote with the city council uh, that they may potentially create zones where people can camp for a period of time. So can you speak to one, the first clearing out the jungle? What was that like yesterday? Uh, maybe speak to the ramifications of what the jungle is. And two, um, this vote, is it going to create more jungles? potentially, um, which I believe is Friday, October the 14th. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this one's, uh, this one's complicated and yet it's big in the news. There's a lot going on right now, but it may be helpful to take a step back and talk a little bit about, um, what, what we're really talking about here. The jungle has been a, a pretty desperate location for individuals um, located between the Renew Brewery, which is just north of the West Seattle Bridge, and about two and a half miles north to I-90. So a big chunk of, of land, and up that has been there for 10, 20 years. And mostly criminal elements, a lot of drug use, um, human trafficking going on, 
a lot of uh, domestic violence, assaults. Um, so this is under the elevated part of I-5, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, when okay. you drive on I-5, you're normally driving over hundreds, if not thousands of people on a regular basis. Wow. So there's a ton of homeless people. When we stop and go, where are those 4,500 unsheltered? Typically They're under right I-5. underneath some some bridge, build, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, so that at one point got up to be four or 500 individuals living there. And in January, there was a shooting that, uh, um, five people were shot, two of them died. And at that point, the mayor said, we have to close this down. We have to end this. Now, normally what a city would do would do what's known as a sweep. And a sweep is just going in. They post that you can't live here anymore. They give them notification of usually about 72 hours, three days, and say, in three days, we're going to come through. And if you're not moved, we will move you. Mm -hmm. And so they'll pack up their stuff and move them on. And that's been going on every day for decades as well. Um, simply what the city would do is whenever there was a a lot of complaints about a particular homeless encampment, they would address it. Quite frankly, if there wasn't any complaints, they wouldn't do anything about it. So if it was tucked way back into into the bushes and nobody really noticed then the city would just leave it where it was. Unless it was under, say, a, a freeway or something like that, and the city or WashDOT needed to get underneath, the Washington Department of Transportation needed to get underneath and fix expansion joints or do work on the freeways, then they would need to get in, and obviously they can't drive heavy equipment if there's a bunch of people living there. So they have a regular schedule of sweeping all the time. And it's been a primary tool of the city to be able to do this and address this. So now, back to January, you have the shootings. You have uh, We have a problem. The mayor says, all right, we're going to sweep. And at that point, um, <laughs> this is where the mission gets involved. I was doing tours with, uh, we do a, a little van tour called the Urban Secrets Tour. And we'll just take people, they jump in the van. And it's different than our search and rescue vans where we go out and hand out blankets, hot chocolate. This would bring individuals who want to know more about the problem. And we would drive around the city and talk about some of the situations in the city, how they got that way. And so the mayor had heard about this tour and said, can I send some of my staff out on this tour? And I was like, "Um, well, so like I talk about you on this tour, (laughs) you know, this may not be so good. Um, But I said yes. And they came along. And so we had a great conversation. We had four or five of the mayor's staff and then uh, Sally Bagshaw and the city council came along as well. And so we did a night just driving around the city talking about, from our perspective, how the city has gotten some of the problems that it has. And at one point, we got into talking about the jungle. And so one of the mayor's staff said, all right, Jeff, what would you do if uh, if you're going to do something to address the jungle? And so we laid out a, a strategy that was both the, the carrot and stick concept was to say, you can't just let them decide where they're going to live. You've got to be able to dictate it. But just simply moving them isn't going to solve it either. You've got to actually provide solutions and help for them to get into housing, get into recovery, give them options. But at the same time you're providing options, you got to give them a hard line that says you can't stay here. And that combination will work together. So um, a few weeks later, they called and said, all right, we're going to do this. And I said, good, go do that. And they went, no, we want you to do it. And so uh, the mission started to do just that and did extensive outreach. And the initial plan was to do it quickly. 
Um, but politics jumped in the way. So it was going to be a, basically a two-week outreach plan to get to tell everybody. So rather than just the three days, it was going to be two weeks. But then the ACLU and some of the other homeless rights activists jumped in and said, nope, we're not going to allow you. We'll sue if you, if you do this. And that's when they started working on the legislation that's known as the sweep legislation that we're talking about now. That, um, which is coming up on Friday, but that situation is the one where what they're trying to do is to say the city can't sweep. You can't tell a homeless encampment to move. So a lot of people are more concerned about the parks while they're going to live in the parks, but there's, it's a major tool of the city to be able to do address homelessness in general. And the parks is just one of those places, mm -hmm. meaning if someone camps in the park, then can you move them? And the new legislation says, no, you have 30 days notice you have to give them, but you can't even give them notice unless you have adequate housing. And the definition of adequate housing is something you and I would live in, mm. not a tent, not a, not a shelter, not a, you know, so he looks at it and says, city does not have that housing now, which means then you can't post, you can't sweep. And that's currently before the city council. That's what they're going to be voting on on Friday. And so in that regard, that's what's coming to a head. Mm. Now, put those two together, that that's a strategy they're trying to do to block the sweep of the jungle while we're sweeping the jungle. So that was in May when we started to do the work on the jungle. And so it went all summer long with politics back and forth. We continue to do outreach. So as of yesterday, when we actually finally worked with the city to close the jungle, um, it had gone from nearly 400 residents down to four. Mm. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the situation where when the sweep comes and you're going to make these people move, we're talking about making four people move. So that's the strategy we have is work with them, get them relocated, and then at the bottom line, you won't actually have that many that are going to be problematic. As of this morning, we didn't make those four moves yesterday. As of this morning, we got two more into, uh, into housing and in shelter, and then um, we've got two left that were there this morning at 730. Cool. Hmm. Wow. So <clears throat> what I'm hearing from you is that potentially if this legislation's passed, the jungle under I-5 could conceivably come back again. Is that fair? Yeah. In fact, one city council person has actually suggested just that. So after all the work, all the investment of energy, time, money <laughs> to clean out what wow. has notoriously been a very, very bad place, um, one of their suggestions is, is, gosh, now that the jungle's cleaned up, why don't we use that to house homeless people? And <laughs> you kind of look at them and think, uh, what What's are you the thinking? Disconnect yeah. yeah, it's it's a little bit crazy, and some of the stories just to put a little color on it to say why is it bad that they because quite frankly it's one of the drier places. You got you know huge uh, three four lane highway above northbound yeah. southbound your eight lanes. You get a dry area that keeps you out of the rain. This is Seattle, you know that mm, it's right. that kind of a thing. But the flip side is, is that from the first day we were in there, our team comes in and one of the first things they come upon is a woman being raped. Mm. They chase the guy off um, and help the woman get to uh, uh, a woman's shelter. And those kind of things happen on a regular basis, including at one point there was a couple where um, they overdosed on heroin, passed out. Um, she passes out uh, asleep in the tent. He falls out halfway between the inside of the tent and the outside. And when she finally comes to, she notices her husband is completely unconscious and non-responsive. She goes over to him, 
and there are rats eating his face. Mm. And they have eaten off um, one eyelid and the outer lens of his eye. So he's blind in that eye. But he's also, at that point, has pretty much died. They call 911. They come. They revive him. But he was dead just long enough to where he's got some brain um, damage and those kinds of situations. So that story, rather than being unusual, is actually far more common in the, in the jungle. There's right. so much going on, even to the point that yesterday, even with the majority of the, the residents moved out, there was a assault taking place. Uh, two men got into a fight. One had a knife. The police happened to be up there because they were helping with the sweep. And at that point, when they heard it, they ran up there, noticed this other man stabbing the other guy, and they told him to drop the knife. He didn't drop the knife, and they shot him, and he died. So that's unfortunately, a normal kind of occurrence in the jungle. So when we talk about, well, gosh, can we just let them live there? We're talking about crime. Um, we're talking about drug dealing. We're talking about, there's piles of bicycles that have been stolen from your neighborhood, from Beacon Hill, different neighborhoods. And then they basically run a bicycle chop shop and mm -hmm. they'll part them out and rebuild the bikes and sell them. And then that gives them the money to be able to buy the drugs. And then that continues to support the drug problems we have in our community. Wow. So what do you say to someone who disagrees or says, well, now that the jungle is clo is closed, why don't we reopen it and let people like be housed there? What do, what do you say to somebody who potentially has that different opinion? Or it, it's the a ACLU? What, what, is their, what is the lobbying agency for... Uh, yeah. So the ACLU, yeah. their 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 voice on it is to be able to say, um, and and we agree with the premise of what they say. But the the premise is you can't just move people when they don't have a place to live to begin with. To tell them you can't live here is discompassionate. If you care about these people, then don't make them move when you don't have a place to offer. Offer them a place to go and let them go and put them into housing. Don't just move them from, you know, overpass to overpass. So we agree with them. However, the difference is when we're talking about places like the jungle, we're talking a place of lawlessness and crime and a place that the city can't get to, police can't get to, the fire department won't go in without the police. And so they would literally set somebody's tent on fire that they were mad at and you'd have a huge bonfire underneath I-5. You'd be driving down I-5 and there'd be smoke billowing up from underneath and somebody's burning somebody else's belongings and the fire department couldn't even get here. The reason why is because on the ground, there's no bathrooms or toilets. So you have four to 500 people going to the bathroom just right on the ground. And that wouldn't be a health hazard, you know, unless it rained or something like that. It's a good thing it never rains in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. You know, in other words, this is craziness. And if you go under there, there are needles, syringes mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, this is uh, largely 90, 95% heroin addicts. Um, it's... It's a bad, bad place, or was. Uh, as of today, it is not. But in that situation, to stop and say, we're going to leave somebody there, that's where we differ. And mm -hmm. we look at it and say, we may not have the housing now. Let's move them to an encampment where we can provide services. So the bulk of them were moved to Royal Brome and Airport Way, which is a little triangle piece of land. And now there's... Uh, Oh, I don't know, maybe uh, 60, 70 tents that are all right there where they're living. But there we can provide porta potties. We can provide meals. We can provide, we just bought a shower trailer so we can actually park a shower trailer. They can come take showers. But other social services.
service agencies who would never go into the jungle. Um, now they can reach out to an encampment on a regular basis. Uh, police and fire can get ready access. There's already been three to four people that we know whose lives have been saved, mm-hmm. two that have overdosed and were able to get medical care immediately where they would have died otherwise. And then one that was shot and one that was stabbed that would have died, but because they were there, medical, fire, police, everybody were able to arrive almost immediately, mm. two-minute response time versus the jungle, they would decide whether they should even go in at all. Yeah. Wow. So that's the contrast. Do we agree with the ACLU we just shouldn't move them around for moving around sake? Yeah. But the flip side is we don't believe that when we're talking about uh, a population that in most cases is facing heavy drug use and addiction and crime involvement, nor should you just let them pick where they get to live and allow them to set up their crime syndicate wherever they want. Wow. The, the portion of the, this legislation that's getting voted on, at least in, in my circle, I'll speak for myself with, I uh, have lots of parents of young kids, right? They're kind of freaked out about homeless encampments in, in city parks. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are they, is the proposal allowing, um, a homeless person to pitch a tent for a period of time and then move on as long as they're within their time frame? Is that? Uh, what the proposal is saying is there is no time frame. Okay. Um, so they can stay as long as they want. Okay. So the time frames are restrictive to the city on how soon they can move somebody. Okay. So even if it's a situation where a person's living in what's considered a hazardous condition, um, just about three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we had an individual who was killed um, they were sleeping in their tents right on uh, an off-ramp, um, the, the grass strip in between the freeway and the off-ramp. And a guy that was drinking and driving um, didn't handle the off-ramp right, and he went onto the median onto that grass field, ran over a tent, and killed the homeless individual mm-hmm. who was in the tent. Mm-hmm. So when you look at those scenarios, we would say that's a hazardous area. What this legislation is suggesting is that you can't even get them out of that area without, in that case, 48, 48 hours. hours. you got to yeah. notify them for two days. They should be allowed to stay in this hazardous area. By definition, if it's a hazardous area, they should be made to move immediately right. if we really care about them. Right. Otherwise, they're going to get run over by a car. So it's there's the legislation is seen from the homeless rights side of going, they should have every right and protection that everybody else does. But quite frankly, if you go start walking around on the median in between the freeway, the state patrol will come and arrest you. Yeah. They, they will move you on. What this is saying, unless you're homeless, mm. in which mm-hmm. case you have a right not only to be there, but pitch your tent, cook your food there, do whatever you want. Mm. It, it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So follow-up to that is... Um, what for for individuals listening, you know, that are uh, homeowners in Seattle, just kind of your everyday person, and then also the city of Seattle. Think um, politicians, I guess, policymakers. What's a healthy perspective for us to have when we're talking about moving people? Where do we put them? They're not just boxes of widgets, right? These are human beings that yep. they're they're people. Um, but in the same, like there's a spectrum, right? We don't want them to sleep on our own doorstep necessarily, but we want them to have a place that they can be and feel comfortable and safe. Um, how do we balance all that? And both from the politician side and then from a citizen side. 
Yeah, and great question. And it's the one that, that haunts us the most because we don't the we believe the, the sweeps are a tool the city needs to still have as an option, but we don't believe they should use it all the time. So it shouldn't be just going to move them. Hey, there's a homeless encampment. Let's make a move. But rather address some kind of systemic problems that might be going on with a particular encampment. There are lots of encampments that actually take care of themselves. They, they do have porta potties. They, they might be attached to a church and they, they pick up the trash. They're caring for each other. They're living in community. There's some good things about those encampments compared to the others. So I don't want to blanket this and say that all encampments are that way. However, the logic on this is that if we're really compassionate about these individuals, then we want to actually solve the problem that's there. So typically what we do is we say we need, if we give the title homeless, then what we need to do is provide them a home and we've solved the problem. But that's actually some faulty thinking. The question is, how did you become homeless? So when you ask that question, you actually have to solve the problem that created the homelessness to begin with. Otherwise, they will fall right back into homelessness. Which seems super daunting. Exactly. So that's the goal for us. Is So we talk about it all the time. We say homelessness isn't so much a resource issue as it is a relationship issue. It's about us walking alongside of somebody and helping them through some difficult times. Mm-hmm. So think about your own lives. If you lost your job, you didn't have any other income, you would stretch your savings, you'd borrow money, you'd run up your credit cards, and pretty soon, if you didn't get any help, you would then be out of luck there. And then you would move into a smaller place and move into your... The question is, would you be homeless when you lost your job and you lost your money? Even if you lost your house, you wouldn't be homeless. You would find friends and family to stay with. You guys would call me and say, Jeff, where can I go? And I would put you up. And that's, and I don't mean at the shelter. I mean, I I find you in my basement or something like that. In other words, we take care of each other. So if somebody's out on the street, what happened there? Why didn't that work? Well, typically because that that has either a criminal justice system, um, mental health issue or addiction issue. You've stole your mom's flat screen TV. You've been high and threatened her a couple of times. And she finally stops and says, I no longer feel safe with you in my house. Mm. And your own mom says, I can't allow you to stay here. And you've done that to your friends and you've done that to your, the rest of your family and you end up on the street. So when we talk about this, we're talking about a scenario that says, wow, there is homelessness there. But the problem isn't that they don't have a home. The problem is why they don't have a home. Mm. So when we talk about that 60-40 that we talked about earlier, 60% of the, the homeless that are going through an economic issue, there's great systems that are helping them out and moving them forward. But this 40% is more troubling. Because of that, the, there's a greater percentage of that 40% that are actually addicts, have severe criminal issues or uh, mental health issues that actually make them less safe. So when we look at it, and if that's the growing population, then the answer isn't that we have a homeless problem. The answer is we have a drug problem. Mm. We have an addiction problem, and that's showing up in all kinds of other stats. Right now, um, deaths from opiate use alone have exceeded traffic accident fatalities. And that's nationally, in the state, in the county, in the city, across the board. And that's just heroin. So when we're talking about, we're not talking about all the rest of the drugs. Like, for example, uh, DUI fatal um, accidents from marijuana alone have tripled Hmm. in just the last two years. 
no surprise. We just right. legalized it. That's going to go that route. But we're we're looking at this this problem with our community, and we're calling it homelessness. Hmm. But our problem is actually drug addiction. Drug addiction. Yeah. And but when we look at our strategies, our city isn't actually coming on with strong strategies to address drugs. Hmm. We're trying to buy more homes. Hmm. So you'll see the city say we got to raise taxes and be able to get more homes because we have homeless. And it's like, yeah, well, somebody needs to reach up ahead and shut off the spigot mm -hmm. of what's creating this problem and putting more people right. on the streets. So, uh, I mean, that it seems daunting um, and it seems overwhelming um, in the midst of the that 40 percent who just seems like it, they're in this cycle of drug addiction, criminal justice system, um, you know, kind of going back and forth, homelessness. Can you give us a, a couple of stories or maybe one story of someone who made it through um, and how the mission did partner and developed that relationship them to get them to where they are today? Yeah, absolutely. We have lots of them. And, and by the way, as much as this sounds daunting and overwhelming, um, we, we, people ask me all the time, gosh, are you just feeling depressed and overwhelmed? And it's like, no, no. We, we, they're like, well, what, why do you think that you can make a difference? And our strategy is simple. We have them outnumbered. Mm. And it takes a second to think about that. We have them outnumbered probably 100 to 1. I haven't done the math. I should do it sometime. But we basically, so we're looking at 10,000 homeless. But if we look at King County, I think we're in the, two yeah, two to three million in that range. Mm -hmm. So we have them outnumbered. There are vastly more of us than there are of them. Now, there is no us or them. <laughs> these are our families. These are our people. This, these, are, these are our citizens. So the issue, though, is that if we can all work together, so it kind of comes back to your question earlier about what can one family do, what can somebody do, and that's exactly what we suggest is if we took – uh, the churches of King County and said, what if we got five churches to take on one individual and maybe two or three corporations to jump in to help the same one individual and maybe five to 10 families, maybe 20 families in that neighborhood to help one individual. That's a lot of resource to wrap around one individual who might be homeless in their neighborhood. And at that point, that allows not just one family to try to wrestle with somebody who's messy and going to have some challenging problems, but all of us to work together on that. I think we have to rethink this problem and think, gosh, we've farmed it out to some service provider who's going to meet that need, or I personally have to help this one homeless individual. It's like, yeah, that doesn't work so well. Their own family has kicked them to the curb. But if we've got them outnumbered, we can do that. So how the mission does that is we do everything from providing shelter, providing recovery, legal work, dental work. We do all kinds of things to help the homeless get through the obstacles that might have put them where they are. Legal work, getting rid of you know felonies or warrants or past fines, whatever that is, so they can get a job and move forward and kind of get their own housing. But the way it also looks is we run search and rescue vans that go out at night. And these vans go out uh, usually 7, 8 o'clock at night until about midnight. And they go where all these homeless encampments are. And we bring blankets, hot chocolate, hats, gloves, socks, um, sandwiches, but mostly a van load of people. And the van load of people, remember when we said this isn't a resource issue, it's a relationship issue? 
it's coming back and not allowing them to isolate out in a corner of our city, but actually showing up, getting to know their name. And it takes week after week of visiting them. But through time, we eventually get a chance to break through and be able to set up some, some off-ramps for them out of homelessness and into a safe place. So a great story on this is uh, pulling one right from the jungle. Uh, about two years ago, one of the individuals in the jungle, and our vans were going in the jungle before we ever started this outreach work for the city. But in that process, um, there's a group of Sudanese young, uh, young men, and uh, we were able to, to bring one of them out. And uh, his name was Ring, and we got Ring out, and Ring uh, came through our program, uh, had a pretty severe addiction, and we were able to walk him through that. And so he went through the program, and he's been clean now for two years, got a job. And now he helped us when we were still doing outreach in the jungle with the city. He came with us to go reach out because he's got two brothers that are still living under the jungle. And just about, well, two months ago now, we got his middle brother out. And so his middle brother, by going in and visiting with him and talking with him and being relational, getting to know their stories, getting to know their specific challenges, helping them jump through it, we've now got McGare, who's his brother, out. And so he's now going through addiction recovery. The challenge is they have one more brother, and uh, I saw him yesterday, and he was still in the jungle. I think I saw a photo of him actually uh, in the Seattle Times. Yes, I was he, like that. He's Sud- I used to work with Sudanese. I was like, that's a Sudanese guy. Yeah. 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 And unfortunately for him, he was high at the time, mm-hmm. and so not uh, not willing to work with us or the police, and um, we're we're still monitoring that situation. But that's the part for us is that yesterday because of. Um, what the what the brother was doing there and some of the, the chances that he might get arrested, something might go bad. Ring, who was the one that got out two years ago, he works at Amazon now. Mm-hmm. Ring was actually able to get some time off from Amazon. He came down and actually picked up his brother and they he took him for a drive and ended up having to go back to work. So we don't know the close, you know, we haven't closed that chapter yet, but that's a real person coming alongside a real person and helping. And that's the strategy. Mm-hmm is that it's going to be about relationships. That the bottom line is it's got to be all of us moving towards them rather than moving away. And that's what we need to do as a community. So I've heard a rumor about you that you have lived on the street for a period of time. To um, Let me back up on this question. The Union Gospel Mission has a program where people can... Um, be homeless for a period of time. Is that correct? Like I could go down and be, what What do you call it? The, um, we call it a plunge, but the plunge, we don't actually make people homeless. Okay. But thank you. They can live on the street. if, if They can like. experience yeah. what homelessness is like is maybe a better way to put yeah. it. And you have done that yourself. Is that correct? Well, sort of. Okay. Yeah. So when I first came to the mission, um, the president of the, the mission at that time, there was an overlap. So uh, I arrived, and then there was three months before he retired. And uh, so he, it was basically just this brain dump of trying to get me. Remember, I'm living in the mountains. I know nothing about homelessness or anything else. And so he's got to get me up to speed as fast as he can. So he sends me down to the men's shelter. And I basically stayed at the men's shelter and, you know, four days, three nights, all expenses paid, um, (laughs) being right down there. So that's what that was. Um, And it was staying there. And it included 
um, everything from going out on the search and rescue vans, but experiencing everything that happens at the shelter, eating there, sleeping there, being with the guys, going through everything from the Bible studies to the recovery, counseling, and the different things that happen. So not sleeping out on the streets. Okay. But What was some of your, what was like a takeaway that you didn't maybe understand or realize about what life would be like? Um, one of the, the most compelling things was going out on the search and rescue van. It spun my head. It, it just was seeing homelessness in its rawest form, um, in a most unpleasant form for the first time. And it was really troubling to me and I didn't know what to make of it. Here was a modern American city that had resource and wealth. And yet here were people living in some just horrific conditions. And I didn't know what to do with it because it was, you know, you had people living in filth and squalor and I'm standing in the shadow of CenturyLink Field. And, you know, there's people that are paying, I don't know how much for a Seahawks ticket and driving fancy cars. And yet we're going right by people that are living in bad things. And so at first I didn't know what to do with it. But that night finished with a really um, a startling event to me. Um, we were at our very last stop, and it was in a part of town um, where there, it's a, basically a meth neighborhood, a lot of um, methamphetamines, and so meth addicts are amped up. They're not actually going to bed. So even though we're there at 12.31 in the morning, they're out walking around because they're all hyper and amped up. We give out our last blankets, and we're doing the last few things. We're just about out of all our supplies, and it's a cold, rainy night, November-ish. It's just nasty night, and off in the distance, I hear this, wait, wait. And I look and way up on the, the road ahead was this, this kid, big kid, 6'4", but big black kid. He's running down the street. And as he's running down the street, I hear this slap, 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 slap. And the slap, slap, slap is his socks. It's really raining hard. The, the street's wet, pouring down rain. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but when your feet, if you've been run across a wet lawn in your socks, it takes on that water. The socks get heavy start and they start off. to pull off. And yeah. so you get this long toe on your socks. Well, that's what's happened to him. So he has no shoes on. He's running in his socks and they're slapping down the street and he's hollering out, wait, wait for me. So we wait. He comes up, running to the back of the van, and he comes up and he says, oh, man, I'm glad I caught you guys. Do you have any socks, dry socks? And I'm looking at him, just pouring down rain. He's standing on <laughs> wet ground, and I'm like, dude, you don't need socks. You need shoes. shoes. Yeah. And he looks at me, and we, you know, we carry socks and things like that. But he's like, well, so do you have any shoes? And I'm like, No. You know, we can't possibly carry every size somebody might have. So we're looking at each other and he's going, well, then do you have any socks? You know, in other words, I'm the foolish one. You know, it's like you need shoes. And he's like, well, you don't have any. So I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for socks. Do you or do you not have any socks? All right. We got socks. So we give him the socks. We give him some hot chocolate and sandwich and that type of thing. But then uh, while I'm standing there next to him. I'm looking at him and I'm wearing a pair of tennis shoes that are those worst shoes you have. They're the ones your wife wants you to throw away. It's the one you mow the lawn in. They're all stained with green. They're all worn out. They're, they're, they've been, should have been thrown away a long time ago. I wore those because I knew I'd be doing search and rescue. And I probably have six, seven, eight pairs of other shoes back home that are dress shoes, hiking shoes, running shoes, etc. So I'm standing there with my worst shoes on and I hear this little voice, and it's, give me your shoes. Hmm. 
and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I don't want to give him my shoes. What am I going to wear? I'm going to be standing on the wet pavement, even though I know this is the last stop of the night we're about to go in, and I'm conflicted about the whole thing. And it's but the voice doesn't go away; it keeps just saying, "You need to give him your shoes." Yeah. So I stop and I loosen up the laces and I pull one shoe off and now I'm standing like a flamingo, you know, with my my you know foot that's got a shoe on it. I'm balanced on that. My socked foot is you know tucked up, and so I loosen up the laces on the shoe and I hand it to him and I go here try this. Now this is after I've looked at him. Remember I said he's big, six four. I look at his feet; they're huge, and I'm thinking there's no way this is gonna fit. So I asked him what size do you wear, and he goes thirteen, and I'm like oh I'm gonna be all right. I'll get my shoe back. I hand it to him. He slips it on. And I'm not kidding. He puts it on and he looks up at me and he goes, ah, just like Cinderella. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, this is not like Cinderella. That's not a glass zipper. You're not a woman. This is not, you know, this is not Cinderella. But now he's standing there with one shoe on and he's looking at me like, Really? You're just going to give me one? Because I'm still standing dry because I've got just my one foot on. Well, so I eventually stop and I pull the other one off. I give it to him. We lace it up and uh, we take care of him. He goes off into the night. Um, I'm now in my socks. I walk around, get in the van, and my staff is all excited. They're like, oh, Jeff, that was so awesome. I go, no, that was not awesome. And they were like, yes, it was. And I was, no, it is not. You don't know what was going on inside of me. Mm. That what was happening earlier in the evening, there's these two C's that when you work with homelessness, most people, when they first see somebody who's homeless, the first emotion we feel is what would I call comparison. We look at them and we say, oh, after working with the homeless, I just feel so thankful and grateful. Mm -hmm. And I realize how much I have compared to what they have. Mm -hmm. So the first emotion we feel, and I felt that earlier in the night, was the comparison of my life versus their life. But by the end of the night, it started to shift over to compassion, mm. to where then I had to start feeling what he felt and what he was doing. And I had to be confronted by my own lack of compassion. In other words, it's not enough to just simply compare myself to him and go, boy, am I glad I'm not where he is. That's not a wrong feeling, but if it ends there, then we're in trouble. But if it gets to the point of compassion, and that's with passion, and passion means the sick are suffering, and so it's that idea that we actually take on the suffering of the other individual. We try to feel what they're feeling. And that was the point where here I am standing with one foot going, am I going to get the other foot wet? And I'm content to let a guy who doesn't even have a warm place to go walk with wet socks back out into the street. Mm. Am I being compassionate? Uh, it's not enough to just compare myself. Mm. It's that I've got to put myself in his shoes or him in mm -hmm. mine, whatever that might be. But I had a really, really dark lesson in my own soul that night. Mm -hmm. That as much as I thought, oh, I've been in ministry, I'm this guy that runs the mission, I've got it all figured out, what I learned about myself was that I take care of myself first and foremost. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily put myself in their shoes to feel what they're feeling and to think about the problem from their perspective. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Um quick question can you tell us the story of robert herjavec from shark tank <laughs> uh sure so uh robert well uh, one night phone rings and the phone is um as a friend of mine from toronto area and he so distance and time that's a three-hour time difference and my phone's ringing at like 1 30 in the morning 
and it's it's my friend Johnny, and I'm like, oh, what time is it out there? Why is he calling me? So. I answer, I go, hey, what's up, Johnny? What, you know, thinking something might not be good. And he stops and he says, hey, I got a friend and uh, he, he needs some uh, help right now and would love to just come and work at the mission. Do you guys ever do that? And I go, yeah, we do it every day. There's all kinds of people come volunteer and so send him. And he's like, well, you need to know who he is. And I go, it won't make any difference who he is. And he says, no, it might. And I said, so who is he? He's a celebrity. And I'm like... Well, that still doesn't change anything. And he's like, well, he's really famous. One of my still doesn't change anything. Who is he? His name's Robert Herjavec. And I'd never seen Shark Tank, so I had no idea who Robert Herjavec was. So I go, yep, still doesn't change anything. I know nothing about him. And he's like, Shark Tank. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't seen it. So he says, all right, well, the guy, he's very wealthy, um, hundreds of millions, if not a billionaire. I don't know his actual net worth but has multiple shows, multiple businesses, and is doing quite well. And uh, he says he just needs some time. And so if it's all right, could could he call you and you guys set something up? And I said, sure, have him call. So I hang up the phone and get ready to go to bed. And uh, the phone rings, and it's Robert Herjavec. And he says, so it's all right if I come? Yeah, well, what are the details? And I just go, just come. This is our address, and we'll uh, let me know when's good. And he says, tomorrow? And I said, sure, come tomorrow. So he um, apparently has his own jet. So he flew out um, and was there the very next morning. So he showed up to work and he worked at the mission and just plugged in on loving individuals and caring for them and being a part of everything. So he'd get up in the morning at seven and he would literally cook um, breakfast for everybody. And he'd work throughout the day unloading trucks, doing different work around the the mission. And then he would stay and work into the evening at our welcome center, which is kind of like ground zero. It's the scariest place at the mission, right? Where people come in. um, So they may come in high, they may come in with any number of challenges. And he would work that till like two or three in the morning. And then he'd go to bed and start over at seven. And he did this for a week, week and a half, and then uh, his his business was merged. They were buying out some other huge firm, and he needed to go sign documents, so he flew back to Toronto. And it was, you know, we became friends and got to know each other a little bit, and he fell in love with the mission, and we kind of just left it at that and said, you know, well, we're here anytime. But he... Uh, he uh, he noticed that when we would hand out socks, that we were constantly running out of socks. So it's a number one thing. If you're homeless on the streets, your feet get wet, and you you don't have a dryer to throw them in, you don't have a washer, so they'll pull their socks off. But now they're either wearing wet socks or they don't have any socks at all. So we go through a ton of socks. So Robert noticed this, and so he said to me, he goes, Jeff, one thing, I want to make sure that we never run out of socks again. And I said, what did you just say? And he says, I want to make sure that we never run out of socks again. And I go, I'm not, I'm not, it's not the sock thing. That's awesome. But did you just say we? <laughs> and he said, absolutely. He says, uh, I, I am a part of you guys, and I love what you're doing, and I'm going to be, I'm totally with you from now on. So he committed that day to literally fund every pair of socks that we wow. ever need. And so we simply work with his company. And whenever we run low, he sends another shipment of 10,000 pairs of socks. Wow. And he's been doing that for two years now. Wow. And um, we just place our order and socks show up. So, But it, it got even better. He joined up at uh, one of our catalysts. Uh, 
he came and uh, shared his testimony there and the rest of his testimony. And I think this has been on People Magazine and everything mm-hmm. else. So I'm not reveal- revealing some hidden secret of his life. But he had made some poor choices uh, relationally and uh, lost his marriage. And his kids hated him for it. And it became something where he actually became a, a bit suicidal. Mm-hmm. And so he was thinking about it in his life. And that's where he met my friend Johnny. And Johnny talked him through um, the crisis he was in and said, well, one of the things you need to do is go take care of others. So that's why he came out. But in that process, uh, he came and shared that testimony at one of our galas. And um, you have a room filled with people of wealth. And typically, they're, they're like, I've got everything figured out. Nobody can talk to me. And then now Robert Herzevac, who is a person of even greater wealth, who's like them, has everything figured out, now shares a story of brokenness mm-hmm. and says, hey, I'm in trouble. And so really resonated that night. Uh, a lot of auction items, raised a lot of money. Uh, he's donated on multiple levels, bought a search and rescue van, brand new, fully equipped. And uh, he continues to be a, a dear friend of the mission and... Uh, we stay in touch with him on a regular basis. Cool. That's great. So we're a podcast about Seattle, about the community. Um, and so looking at it from looking at Seattle from a big picture, where do you as CEO of the union gospel mission sees, what do you see in Seattle's future over the next five years? And then maybe kind of what are your greatest hopes and concerns for the city going forward? Um, one of the things that the mission's working on directly, and, and we were resistant at first to step in into this role, but is to um, convene the churches of Seattle, uh, to bring them together, to one, celebrate what God is doing throughout the community, but also be able to identify some of the unique challenges that our city faces and help open the doors so the churches can engage with those challenges. So one of the things that we're seeing is the trend of churches doing just that, of starting to pull together. We had one meeting uh, up on Capitol Hill, and there were a couple of churches that uh, the pastors had been there, one for like seven years and the other one for 15. And until we had pulled them together into this meeting that we invited everybody in, they had never met, and they were across the street from each other. Mm -hmm. And we have that happening all over the place where each of our congregations have a passion and a calling from God. They have a vision for what they're going to do in their community. But um, one of our favorite phrases or questions is, is how many churches are there actually in Seattle? And then uh, we hold up one finger. There's one. Um, There is a body of Christ, and that is the church. That is the bride of Christ. And the reality is, is we may have different uh, services on Sunday that fit our style or is kind of our teaching or the worship we like or a particular slice of theology that fits with how we think. But the reality, we all still serve Jesus Christ and follow him as our Lord and Savior. So if that's the case, why don't we take that common denominator, band together and address some of the more systemic problems in our community, whether that's foster care, trafficking, homelessness, uh, education, it just goes and goes. Whatever the, our community is feeling and fearing, we might be able to step up and help. The way this looks is a verse out of uh, Jeremiah, and uh, Jeremiah 29 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And that verse uh, I love. It's, it just really lays out a great strategy and it stops and says, we're here And we may feel like we're at odds with what's going on with culture right now as believers. 
But the reality is, is we're here because God's called us here. He sent us here. He's, and he calls it exile. He says, I sent you into exile for this reason, that you would bring welfare to your community, to your city. So that call is what I believe that the, the church, the one church can and should do, is to pull together, link together, identify the challenges that our mayor is facing, that our city council is facing, and then come alongside of them and say, you know what, maybe we can help. So the jungle story we just told is a bit of that example. The city called us just last week and said, do you realize we've had this problem for 20 years? We've spent all kinds of money trying to solve it, and we could never solve it over 20 years. And the mission has just done that in three months mm. and didn't cost a thing. That's the church. Mm. That's mm-hmm. us coming alongside the city, helping them solve a difficult, messy problem that they can't solve by themselves. And that's the, the light that we can be in our, in our city, that verse out of Matthew that says, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they will praise your Father who is in heaven. Mm-hmm. So the missions kind of scalp that and uh, done a little uh, paraphrased version of it that just simply says our vision is to um, so boldly impact poverty and brokenness in such a significant way that our communities take notice and point towards God. Not point towards the mission, point towards God. Well, the only way they're going to point towards God if it's the Christians in general that are doing it, not one organization. Mm. So people love the mission. They think it's great. And it's like, yeah, that's great. Actually, we love you and you're part of this. So we come back and say, the real story with us is it's Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. There's a possessive S at the end of Seattle's, Mm. meaning this is our mission. It's your mission. It's my neighbor's mission. It's all of us working together, but that's the same strategy that we as the church should be doing and coming to find how we can bring welfare to our community. So we, the reason we even started this podcast was to, to activate um, and educate listeners on issues that are taking place in Seattle, cool things that are happening in Seattle, and hopefully give listeners the ability to, to participate um, and be the change agents, right? That that they want to be to live a bold and and um, uh, meaningful life to give back towards the city, right? So, what are some ways that you know me and Phil and everyone listening can actually give back and participate in what UGM is doing? Um, as I said, the the best way is to personally get involved somehow with an individual in need, and they may not be homeless right now but they may be on the edge of homelessness or they may be fighting addiction or they may be in a, in a situation where they're just hurting. And, you know, if you think about what my friend Johnny did for Robert Herjavec, that's what we need to do. Mm. Um, Robert's not ever going to be homeless. <laughs> you know, I can't, there's no picture in my mind that says he's ever going to fall into homelessness. But the difference is it doesn't matter what you have as a hurting human being. And when Christ left the earth, he left us behind to come alongside those in need and be his hands and feet in that process. So my encouragement to everybody is to just stop and pray about it and stop and think, do I know right now one person who's going through a difficult time? That can be a family member. It can be a friend. It can be somebody at work. But it doesn't have to be somebody who's an addict or homeless or is a prostitute or is, you know, you just look at it and thought, no, likely there's somebody in your circle right now who's going through a really tough time. And I believe if we simply ask the spirit to guide us on who he would have us to reach out to, (laughs) that that those names are going to come to mind right away. And it probably will be three or four or five. And then we can just pick one and say, what can I do for them today? 
And maybe it's just a phone call. Maybe it's uh, taking them out to coffee. Maybe it's saying, hey, can I pay to get your car fixed? Maybe it's helping them land a job. Maybe it's giving them a bed in your basement. You can see how the scale starts to grow. But the reality is, is like we talked about comparison and compassion, if we can just stop and say, well, gosh, they're going through a tough time right now. I'm really grateful that I'm not. (laughs) That starts to sound really hollow. But if we can stop and say, gosh, what would I do? I mean, what would I wish somebody would do for me if I was where they are at right now? And then figure out how to do that. And again, don't do it yourself. You have them outnumbered. Invite others to pull together. Get your men's group together. Get your women's group together. Get several families to help out on that cause. And that's when the numbers start to swell on your side. And you then begin to show love even in a greater way. Because then they stop and think about it. The whole thing about love, romance, is it's hidden in this little thing that you're thinking about somebody when they're not around. So the idea is is that if I'm going to, you know, simply bring flowers to my wife one of the she's she's like well i got flowers in the yard do i really need the flowers what she loves about it is that somewhere during the day i was thinking about her and thought i'm gonna get her flowers she loves the fact that i was thinking about her when she wasn't around well the great thing here is when we go to somebody in need and we actually conspire and scheme and say what can we do to help them if they realize we're thinking about them that's one of the best ways we can convey love to another individual so have fun with it. Plan strategies to, to go in and help somebody else who's hurting and in need. Yeah, that's good. Jeff, this has been awesome, man. Thank you for your time. Um, I know you're an avid Instagrammer. Uh, I follow you on Instagram, and it is fantastic. And um, I feel like you put... Um, you, it's not only something fun for you, but you put your soul into a lot of the content. And so I appreciate that. So if people want to follow you on Instagram, that's at Jeff L seven. Is that correct? That's correct. Is that like L seven weenie? Is that, is that the, what, what is, what is that? <laughs> well, my name's Jeff Lilly. So it's just Jeff L and then, what? And then the seven is just simply, uh, that's the number of the Lord. Okay. Man. Okay. That's Perfect number. The, yeah. Okay. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. And then UGM is just at Seattle, Seattle's. So Seattle with an S U G M. Um, and then you can find their work, um, and everything else at UGM.org. Uh, if you want to go donate, if you want to volunteer, if you want to do a search, uh, rescue van, um, the tours that you were talking about, are, are those open to the public or is that more of a, um, yeah, that's more yeah. limited. So okay. they are open to the public, but you just have to convince me to do one. Okay. So um, search and rescues are going out every night. Okay. And so they can, uh, again, at UGM.org, click the volunteer button and sign up for one of those. Bring some friends and do that. Um, if there's a group of people that want to go out on the other van and get in a conversation about our city and how they might help, um, I, the, the right group of people might convince me to, to go do another uh, drive around and cool. talk about some of the more difficult problems in our city. Uh, maybe we can bring Brett out there and do like a live podcast or something. That'd be yeah. something kind of fun. Yeah. So uh, very much thank you. Thank you for your time. My Appreciate pleasure. Um, we know you're busy. So uh, any way that we can um, support you, you just let us know. So thanks. Rise Seattle is produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. A special thanks to Bravery Music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter at the Rise Seattle, and use hashtag Rise Seattle to be a part of the conversation. 
Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.